Welcome back to the Active Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And you may hear my puppy throughout this entire podcast, because she's right next to me, being very loud. Yeah. Can you hear her, Josh Hallman? Uh, do you want the truth, or do you want me to lie? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Give us a rating. <laughs> Write a comment. Tell us the weirdest thing an exec has ever said to you in a general. Yeah. The weirdest question they've ever given you. I'm curious about that. And by the way, although I can hear Indy just a little bit in the background, uh, you know, if you don't like what you hear, you don't like dogs. So that's <laughs> that's on you. So you have no soul and it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, that's that's your problem. I like that question. Do you Do you know the answer to your question? Oh, no. It's a hard question, Indy. <laughs> oh, God. This is going to be the best podcast we've ever recorded. <laughs> All right. Well, today, let's just cut to the chase. Today, we're doing some of this week's in writings, and Josh has some interesting tidbits of industry stuff. Listen, we're, we're bringing a new segment on the Act 2 podcast because uh, Tasha and I we always talk about things that are happening. We'll send links to each other. And, oh, my God, did you see uh, James Gunn's taking over the DC universe? Things like that. And then Tasha was like, hey, why don't we do like a news segment on the podcast? And I thought to myself, yeah, let's do it. So <laughs> so there's there's a few things that I, that I picked out of the news that are hopefully going to be somewhat relevant that we can talk about and... I'm going to bring them up here because they're things that are happening in the industry. Are you ready for this, Tasha? I'm so ready. Let's go. All right. This is something I just read. And I think it's actually important because it somewhat pertains to the last episode. And it is about a Friday the 13th prequel that has been greenlit over at Peacock. It's called Crystal Lake. It's from Brian Fuller, who did... uh, the Hannibal TV show and Pushing Daisies and Dead Like Me. And basically what I was reading about it, because, you know, there's no plot for it quite, or no plot for it yet. It's an expanded prequel is what it's called. And this is why this is interesting to me. It's a movie or a show? It's a show. Okay. It's because just last episode, I kind of went off on that ramble about what are we going to do with horror franchises and where are they going to go and why do we have to keep, locking on to these like characters of like Jason Voorhees and Freddy and this and that. And I'm excited for Crystal Lake. It's cool. It's a cool title, but it's like, are we about to create some brand new mythology around Crystal Lake where there's like serial killers that existed before Jason? I don't know. Sounds cool. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's like a haunted lake and that's where it all starts. That's what, that's what created him. It's not his fault. It's the lake's fault. There's a demon out there. Are we going to humanize Jason Voorhees? <laughs> it feels like the way the trend is to is to humanize villains. It does. So it it's does entirely seem like possible. I, I think you're re- referring to Dahmer right now, maybe. <laughs> and as someone who grew up in Milwaukee during Dahmer, yeah. I could tell you I have absolutely zero interest in watching that show. Me too. Uh, because, uh, you know, I could care less about humanizing Dahmer. Anyway, so that's that. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting because this is this is going to continue to happen, right? Because IP is 
is super precious and becoming more and more and more and more and more for the last 10 years we've been saying this more um popular because it's it's a built-in audience and there's some safety less risk to the people who have the purses doling out the millions of dollars to make these things so it's i'm trying to think of like the lesson we can learn as writers and thinking about these things and for instance, something I'm always trying to crack just in the back of my mind is like, what is the Tasha spin on a fairy tale that we haven't heard before? Like, mm. I want to see that version because every time like a new fairy tale story comes out or um, a rated R princess movie, whatever it is, like, I'm like, why didn't I write that? There's yeah. something cool to finding an IP and doing your version of it. And I think it's completely valid to do that. If you're a horror fan, you know, you're, you really can't work if unless you're hired by this company you can't really work on literally the crystal lake you know prequel movie the jason prequel yeah but something you can do is what they did let's say for mulan they for mulan the live action movie it started as a spec disney did not hire someone to write that movie it was a spec that went out they these two women i believe two women co-wrote it and they just wanted to do a mulan movie and the hope is of course fingers crossed disney will buy it and make it but if not it's based on um a you know public domain historical figure so i can do whatever i want something that i've learned to do because pitches take so much time is that if i'm pitching on an ip i will often create a story that I could technically just take out the IP from the story that I've created and and at least still have the foundation of a spec I could write on my own. Mm-hmm. So if you really love Friday the 13th, a Nightmare on Elm Street, and you want to do a prequel and you don't have access to you know studios who are making those movies, I kind of wonder if you just go for it, but like take out the stuff that makes it the IP. Don't mention the names. Slightly change who freddie is in your version but if someone reads it they can be like oh this could be the next installment of the freddie franchise the way that jj abrams does for a lot of his movies um bad robot often just seeks out reads kind of any up-and-comers sci-fi scripts that could be made for a price that could be cool that seem to fit in the jj brand and then they'll sometimes find a way to kind of you know uh sort of shove it into the J.J. Abrams universe. Yeah. What was the, the latest movie they did that with? A Cloverfield um, Paradox. Yeah, that one was not meant to be part of the Cloverfield world. I don't think the second Cloverfield, Cloverfield Lane, that wasn't either. That was based off of a spec as well. Yeah. Wow, I think you just cracked into something that I'm sure has been talked about before, but that's brilliant because that happened also with Ballerina, which now is inserted into the John Wick yeah. uh, universe. And uh, if you can somehow figure out a way to write a spec that could merge into the IP, then you, you've hit the sweet spot. Yeah. Jesus. Of course, I th- without naming the IP at any point. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. Do I, it. I think Done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, yeah. And by the way, put a pin in what you just said about um, you figuring out how to write your Tasha version of a fairy tale because... At the end of this little news segment, I'm going to drop something in that could inspire you or maybe not at the same time. I was going to say, blow me up or no, inspire no, no. Yeah, it'll, it'll inspire you. All right. Little piece of news part two. I won't do that again. Uh, Hocus Pocus part two, Tasha. Speaking of IP. Yeah. 
It set a freaking record for the most what? streaming minutes ever uh, for a Disney Plus, like for any streaming anything at 2.7 billion minutes in the first weekend. It's already the most watched Disney Plus thing ever. Like more than any Marvel, more than any Pixar, Hocus Pocus 2. And we just left October. I don't understand. I do understand because I watched it because I I love Hocus Pocus, the yeah. original, and so does basically every other human being on the planet who's ever seen it, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all go and watch Hocus Pocus 2, but we don't rewatch that, do we? After we see it, we're so horrified by it that we don't rewatch it. Horrified? Yeah? No? Well, as the resident parent to a seven-year-old child, let me tell you, that just yesterday, my daughter said to me, Dad, can we watch Hocus Pocus 2? And uh, I watched like 15 minutes of it, and then we turned it off. So I don't know what's going on. It's like a rewatchability for 15 minutes at a time. I don't know. Like she got bored? Yeah, something else came up. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what happened. She just throw these things on. I guess it's on. an easy Halloween movie to throw on in the background. You know, you're not going to get any violence and sex, although there's the great baby eating, face eating scene in it, which is my favorite moment. Oh, my God. All right, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I read that Avatar 3 is over three hours long. Are you going to be seeing Avatar 3, Tasha? I'm going to be seeing Avatar 3. Is it Avatar 3? Oh, wait, Avatar 2. Sorry. Avatar 2 is 3. I was like, did I miss one? Well, yeah, Avatar 2. I just bring this up because I don't even know if this is news, but it's just crazy to me that it's taken like close to 20 years, it feels like, for a sequel. Yeah. This is one of the biggest, Avatar was one of the biggest movies ever. And and I just feel like we should have more Avatar in our life. It's like a Star Wars without any of the merchandise. I like it. It's weird to me. It is weird because I just found out, because this is not something I knew for some reason, that Disney World has a whole land slash ride that's dedicated to Avatar which is so strange because like you're saying it's not present in our lives in any way no one buys these toys because they're not fun in the same way that Star Wars is no um we don't get any press about it ever nothing is James Cameron just that big of a badass that he's like fuck it it's gonna be over three hours I don't care if you see it I'm making it. Have fun. Here's in my Avatar 2 movie. Oh, and there's, by the way, 17 sequels coming out, which I'm going to see all of them. I love Avatar. Yeah, it was great. James Cameron's never let me down. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the thing with James Cameron is is you, you hate him, right? I, I feel like Disney probably hates him for spending so much of their money. Yeah. And But he's also guaranteed almost to give you a success. Mm-hmm. So... You just kind of like take my money and I'm going to close my eyes until it comes out and I see the numbers. It's going to be a success. It's James Cameron. Per James Cameron, he's going to do something so technologically cool that there's no way we can't go see it. And then there's going to be nothing but articles about how James Cameron is saving cinema. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Because you can only see it in a movie theater. (sighs) If we get like a Maverick experience and an Avatar experience within 12 months of each other. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if I'll be able to go on. There is a theater in Los Angeles that I've not yet been to. You probably have. That's 4DX or something. Have, like no, that I have the not. seats move. 
and there's like wind effects and stuff. I, I haven't been to that one, but I've gone to the Century City Mall and they have a really good theater there and the, the seats were vibrating and I thought there was actually an earthquake. I didn't know the seats vibrated yeah. and I was like, show oh, oh shit. And then I realized like it was the seats from, yeah. I was watching like Super Pets or something, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're in Los Angeles, maybe go see Avatar normally, but then go see it in that. That's what I'm going to try and do. And uh, I mean, that's part of it. It's like a ride. Okay, moving on. Last thing, last thing. All right, in this new segment, I thought it would be weird if we didn't highlight writers. And we're a screenwriting podcast. So these two writers and directors, Josh Epstein and Kyle Rideout, which I, when I write, read Kyle Rideout, I was like, that's an awesome name. It sounds like a superhero. They wrote a film. It's a feature. It's called Night's Camp. And it's basically about a group of four bubble wrap teens at a summer night's training camp. And they're preparing to reenact an ancient battle when they are accidentally transported to the real battle in 1293. And I read that, Tasha. And I thought, wow, this screams of Tasha. Yeah. And I just wanted to highlight them as writers and the news and just throw it in your face at the same time. <laughs> That's what it feels like. It's just thrown at my face and it hurts so bad. It oh, reminds me of um, the Michael Crichton novel, uh, Time Frame? What the hell? There was a Paul Walker Oh, yeah, movie. the one you told me to adapt. Night's Tale? Night's Time? What? How am I forgetting? Anyway, I'll remember. I'm looking at my books. can't see it. But um, <laughs> yeah, the one I think I think you should adapt. Yeah, absolutely. I think you you'd should. kill it. But um, yeah. that's that. I just wanted to highlight those writers and the, this project that's coming up. That sounds like a great idea. Can I? Mm -hmm. Oh, this reminds me of something. Not to do a tangent, but to do a tangent. Yeah. I was watching a Vince Gilligan interview the other day, probably posted by ScreenCraft because they always post really great interviews. Um, but the interview with Vince Gilligan talking about when he got the idea for Breaking Bad, he said he was out of work, which I thought was really interesting because he, you know, created X Files, one of the greatest shows of all time. Mm -hmm. And he's out of work and Wait. he's lamenting. He didn't create X Files. He wrote on X-Files, yeah. sorry. Yeah. And he he's he's lamenting with his buddy, who's also a writer, how they're out of work and how terrible it is. And what are we going to do? And his buddy jokes that, like, we should buy a Winnebago and drive around Australia and sell meth out of our Winnebago and make some money that way. And mm -hmm. they both kind of laughed because they're both really law-abiding people. And, oh, my God, well, <laughs> that's, that's such a huge jump. But then he was like, what would cause someone to buy a Winnebago and cook math out of like they would really be hard up on money. Why would why would a law abiding person go to those lengths? And that was the root of Breaking Bad, which I always find interesting because whenever I hear people talk about Breaking Bad and it's genius, they always say, Oh, Vince Gilligan pitched it as uh Mr. Chips what is it? What did yeah, they say? Mr. Uh, Chips Scarface. becomes Scarface. Yeah. Right? So like this kind of innocent kind of doofy guy becomes the greatest mobster of all time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, well, that because he pitched it that way, that must be the seed of his idea. And it mm -hmm. absolutely was not. The seed of his idea came from this very simple conversation he had over the phone. That was So why I bring that up is because when you tell me this log line for this night's camp, I think, oh, they're just geniuses. I am not a genius. There's no way I could have come up with this great idea. They're clearly geniuses because they are so good at high concept. And the truth is, 
they maybe like took their kid to a summer camp once and a, another kid was dressed up as a knight pretending he was in real battle. Yeah. And that's the thing that got them to this idea. You have no idea how they came to this idea. And I think when you read articles, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Um, so it's just, I don't get to remember. Yeah. You're not a, you're not an idiot. You just, you just haven't found that idea yet. No. And I, I also love that because we talk about this often and I feel like even within like with you, me, Dave, whatever, we'll throw just crazy ideas or like weird jokes and offhanded jokes or whatever it is. And like Dave and I were, are kind of theoretically working on something and it all started like from the seat of a joke where it was like, oh, what if uh, these two guys got stuck in like a haunted house? And it was like that kind of idea was like, wait a minute, is there something to this? Is there something to this? And we just kind of went down that road. So I think it's really important to uh, always kind of do that stuff with people and 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 just throw shit against the wall because you never know what you're going to get. Make off-color jokes if you have to. <laughs> <laughs> no idea or off-color joke is a bad one yeah, until yeah. it is. Yeah. Anyway, so that's pretty much the the, the roundup. I don't know if uh, that was a good news segment. but That's great. Okay. I really enjoyed it. Thank you to, for doing our first ever news segment. <sighs> A lot of we'll have to give it a cool name. Newsies. No, it's terrible. Okay. Um, this week in writing. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about... <laughs> I want to talk about managers for a second. And I want to talk about hip pocketing. Oh. Which is a term that is a little vague, I think, until you're sort of in it. And... But a lot of people have heard this term hip pocketing. What hip pocketing means is it's usually with managers, not so much with agents, but my, my guess is it can happen with both. I've definitely heard it yeah. a lot with agents, actually. Okay. Okay. So, And it's usually younger agents probably that are going to do this mm -hmm. um, because more experienced agents or agents who have their client list already set aren't even going to bother hip pocketing anyone. They're either going to sign you and spend time on you or they're not going to waste their time at all. So it's usually younger agents who don't have a big client list yet or trying to get a client list together and their reasoning behind hip pocketing you, which we'll explain what it is in a second, but the reason behind it is they aren't sure if you're totally right, if you're going to totally be a hit for them. Yeah. They don't know yet if they want to spend and risk their time management skills on, on you or wait till they have another writer because, again, they're still building their writer's list. And if they, if they sign you, I'm definitely your manager and or agent, and you suck for them or you're not producing enough material for them to get you work or you bomb all of your meetings or whatever it is you're going to do that's not great and that they can't promote you with, um, then they've wasted their time. So instead, they choose to hip pocket you. And what that kind of means is that they're not officially your manager or agent, but they'll sort of act like it a little bit for now. So yeah. you'll, in, until it gets good, right? Until they know that you've proven yourself and that you guys have a good working relationship and that they can make money off of you. So they'll say, hey, send me your stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, send me any producer names that you have relationships with already. Anyone you have a relationship with in the business already, I'll try to meet with them and like get you meetings with them and see what they have available because if they already like you and know you, that's, you know, it's an easier way to get you a job with them. And they'll try to promote you for like kind of a short period of time. Yeah. And if in that short period of time, you've not moved the needle at all, then that hip pocket, you'll start seeing that 
they're not going to start emailing you back anymore. Yeah. They're not really taking your calls because it's this kind of short-lived window where they're going to see if it works. And that's what hip pocketing is. And then to just talk about how to kind of maximize that if you happen to be in that situation, I would say be as proactive as possible. What the manager or agent wants to know, again, is that you are writing all the time. This is your passion. This is what you want to do with your life. You have a lot of material. You're constantly writing because their worst nightmare is to have a writer on their client list who they have to call and be like, have you written anything? Like, mm -hmm. where's your script? I can't sell anything of yours if you don't actually send me a script. What are you working on? They can't advertise you if you're not working on anything. So you need to show that you're actively working all the time. You need to have a clear vision for the kind of writer that you are. You're not a rom-com writer and also a horror writer who, you know, also dabbles in sci-fi. Like, you know what you like to write, whether it's thematically, character-wise, world-wise. You know what genre you like. Like you have a clear vision for who you are because they can sell you that way. Mm -hmm. I can't sell you to work on Haunting of Hill House if the only samples you have are romantic comedies that are 30-minute TV shows. Uh, I, I need a horror sample, right? So that's all stuff that you guys need to get on the same page with. And then definitely try to have meetings on your own and then definitely call them and be like, hey, I really want to meet with such and such producer. The Ideally, you have... Maybe like send them a list of five to 10 producers you want to work with. And the way you do this is you, you look at movies or TV shows that you love. Who produced them? What is the production company involved? And then send that email to your manager or agent who's hip pocketing you and say, I'd love to meet with these people. What do I need to do to meet with them? Because your manager or agent hip pocketing you may say, I don't have a sample that's right for them. Again, if you write all rom-coms and you really want to get into horror, so you're sending them a bunch of horror producers, he's going to say, or she's going to say, go write a horror spec first, and then I can send you over there. So that's another thing you can do to be proactive is try to meet with producers actively. And then hopefully when you have these generals that he or she is setting you up with, when they call back to that producer and say, hey, how is Josh Holman? They're like, oh my God, Josh Holman was amazing. I loved him. Please send me anything else that you have of his. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm so curious where his career is going. And then now this manager agent knows, okay, people like Josh. He's someone that people are responding to. That's worth my time. So that's a way to, to sort of maximize hip pocketing. And that's what it is. Yeah. So <laughs> so you you summed up everything perfectly. I, I, I almost don't even want to say this because it's just me talking a little bit, but I am very aware of hip pocketing. I've had a lot of friends who've been hip pocketed actually in the acting world. And oh, interesting. Yes. And, and then I've definitely known people in the writing world. I can't think of it now, but I may have been hip pocketed at some point and I like, and I might've just blacked it out in my, in my memory, but it is very common. And I guess I just want to say the, the, the the frustration I feel like with writers is that you you grind, you grind, you grind, and then you find this manager. And I think a lot of people, a lot of writers at any level, you get to this point and you're like, I don't want to mess this up. Like what, whether that be the manager, agent, other other job or something. And I think that's the most common at any, you know, like especially when you just start working with someone. If someone hip pockets you, you kind of feel like you're working for your manager, which is not right but it's totally normal to feel that way. And you just have to get your mind out of that mode and be like, we're working together. I don't, I, sure, technically this person works for you, I guess, but it should be a relationship. 
don't treat a manager, like don't be aggressive. Like I want to do this. I want to do this, but just be as proactive as you can. Like you're saying. Yeah. That's a really great point. Have, you know, I think in, you know, uh, content is king in the sense of just always have your scripts ready and be ready to show people it. But I guess you just kind of have to get over this mental hurdle of you don't want to do wrong. And I, you because you, yeah. it's so easy to fall into that trap. I understand it. Compl- I've been in that trap with one of uh, someone I'd worked with where I was like walking like, oh my God, oh, this person's not going to send me out because I'm going to send too many emails. And, and it's just, it's hard to do, but you have to kind of get out of that mindset. Yeah. I think that's, you put it really well too, that don't feel like you work for them, but also don't feel like they work for you, that you are a team. And I agree with not sending a ton of emails. Don't be too worried about it. But if you're sending a lot of emails, there's a sense of desperation there. There's a sense of um, not being organized because could 10 emails have been two emails maybe? Totally. (laughs) And like, like, why are you sending so many emails? And and a lot of, I get this question a lot of like, but what is too many emails, right? And you, you know, we're talking about sending scripts. That's an email with the log lines of the script. Uh, another email is the producers you want to meet with and then kind of let it go. Work some, work your thing, meet people, keep writing. And then if you're not hearing back, let's say this agent manager hip pocketing you said, I'm going to go out with your script, um, you know, TBD, I'll get back to you. And it's been a week. Mm-hmm. Let it go. He's 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 finding he or she is finding people to send this script to. Those people then have to read it, and it takes a lot of time. Usually, samples are the least of people's worries, so it takes them several weeks to even get to to reading it. These are producers I'm talking about. So give it a few weeks, two to three. I would say push towards three, and then check in and say, hey, how is my like? Have you heard anything back on the script that you sent out? Mm-hmm. And yeah. You know, create a pattern like that versus think of it as a relationship with that's romantic. If you send a bunch of texts and you send a bunch of emails, that's going to kind of put the person off. Right. So it's a very similar partnership in that way. I love it. Moving on. Okay. Um, I've been having a lot of conversations about showrunners the last week. Well, the last couple months, I, I would say. A lot of writers are, are talking to me about their horror stories from their own writer's rooms and with showrunners because the attitude of a writer's room trickles down, right? Um, and the showrunner kind of sets the tone for how people are going to be treated in their room. And it's kind of horrifying the amount of people telling me how bad the rooms are and how bad the showrunners are. And when I say bad, it means they're literally treating people poorly, insulting them in the room in front of everyone, deliberately belittling them in front of everyone, creating scenarios deliberately so that the writers within their room are competing against each other and kind of at each other's throats. Because for example, in my room, I assign everyone a script from day one. Everyone knows what script they're going to be working on. I think some people, showrunners, get scared of doing that because, Josh, if you're assigned to episode three, why do you care what's going to happen in episode one, two, five, six, seven, eight? They're not your scripts, right? Mm -hmm. I don't understand that personally (laughs) because you're going to need to know what happens in episode one and two to, to write your three. Not to mention, when I hire you, we're part of a team. We're trying to create the best possible show. Why aren't you going to pay attention? So like that fear doesn't totally make sense to me, though I will allow for there are some writers who do check out and they do do that. But I feel like that's probably a minority. 
Yeah. But showrunners will often hold back what episodes their writers are writing because they want that competition. They want me and Josh to compete for every episode. So we're constantly paying attention on every single episode that we're breaking just in case I get assigned to it. And I also want the best idea because I don't want Josh to write this episode. I want to write this episode. So there's this constant sense of competition that showrunners will create in the rooms, which becomes very toxic. Like that's yeah. so stressful even just talking about it, yeah. right? The best, the best room is a room where you're just going to chill and to talk about story. Best idea wins. Let's just hang out and talk about story stuff. Yeah. And it's been interesting because my friends have been like, how do we prevent ourselves from becoming that? Because if that seems to be so common among showrunners, how do we avoid that kind of ego trip? And I think what I'm observing, my assumption, is that it comes from fear. Like it's so scary. Let's say you're a showrunner with a room of four writers and Josh is one of my writers and he turns in a script that's so fucking good. It's so good. I don't have to like barely do anything with it. Like I'm, he sends it in and it's amazing. And I send it right to Netflix to get, to get approval to me. Like that's scary because is Netflix going to read this awesome script from Josh Hallman and think, well, why isn't Josh Hallman running the show? It's such <laughs> a good script. And I think showrunners have this constant fear of being replaced. It's such a difficult job and there's so much writing on it that yeah. I think fear naturally comes with it so these showrunners react with from that fear and try to like kind of like resource guard the yeah way that makes sense like, they, like and I don't know I I just wanted to talk about that and bring that conversation up because a if you're experiencing that in a room that's where it's coming from and b if you're going to be a showrunner it's important to to stop yourself before it gets there it's not to say that you're not going to have fear I do uh, all every day. There's there's insecurity. Um, this example of someone turning an amazing script happened to me, and I was like, "Oh shit, <laughs> this guy is so good. He should be running the show." And then I was like, "No, Tasha, calm down. It's yeah. okay. It's okay for other people to be great writers, and that has nothing to do with my job security." So uh, it's just important to always catch yourself when you're having these thoughts, and that's what I just wanted to talk about. Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, this is easy for me to say because I'm not a showrunner, but. I feel like I would love it if I was working with a group of writers and then you have this one writer that's just amazing and they, they turn in something that's great because I feel like you're creating this um, atmosphere and you're creating this environment where, like you were saying earlier, we're all working together. This is our show. This isn't my show. I Yes, I am the showrunner. However, this is a joint effort. If you're not on board with that, that's fine. The, you're not a part of this team, but that that's what we're doing. And I feel like you want to have the show where, like going back to Vince Gilligan and the X-Files, is where it's like, wow, look at all of these amazing people came out of this one show. Look at this shit. These writers on Lost created this, this, and this, you know? And so for me, that's personally very exciting. And like you almost want to be the showrunner that makes people be better create showrunners yeah, yeah create you want to create showrunners where you're like yeah you're like the judd apatow tree of like boom i've i've done this well i guess those are actors but you know you you, yeah. you create a lot like a lasting impression and i yeah. feel like that's how you create longevity in my opinion yeah i think i think that's right I, and you can choose two paths you can choose the hero path or you can choose the villain path and if you're self-aware enough i think you you can choose 
the hero path, which is harder because I do feel the fear is real. Not having, there's, it's so hard to get a job, to get any, to sell anything that the resource guarding makes, makes a lot of sense. Mm. But ultimately, let's say you, Josh, you mentor me as, as a showrunner. And then I grow up and I become a showrunner and you're out of work for a year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, hey, Josh, <laughs> I love you. Thank you so much for mentoring me. Like, go, come be my co-EP. Yeah. And then you're, you now have a number two spot and you're making great money. So like there, there's also that piece of yeah. it. Like every, the way they say like jobs beget jobs, I think yeah. like kindness begets kindness totally. as well. EP, man. That's, that's the dream job right there. <laughs> I know. I, yeah. No, no, I like that because I like the, the the point of view is if you're a writer or the perspective of if you are a writer and you're experiencing what what you're talking about, that's good to know that showrunners also face fear and they face issues and they are normal people just like everybody else and they're trying to figure it yeah. out and just make something that's great and put yeah. food on the table at the end of the day. It's all, you know, and, and have shelter. Quick story about that. Because, uh oh, food? Uh, no, <laughs> so like, maybe. Um, <laughs> A friend of mine was talking to me about she was on set for her show and she's told me before that the her showrunner doesn't allow the writers on set. He doesn't like it. And I was like, oh, like he invited you guys all on set. That's pretty impressive. And she's like, yeah, he invited us, but told us specifically not to do any producing. You know, like, you know, don't talk to actors, don't participate. You're just here to watch and observe and learn. She's like, but I ignored him and I and I helped out. Yeah. And he didn't realize he needed that. Like he was so controlling and so scared that he was going to lose his job. So he like controlling, he, that was how he reacted was to micromanage everything, do it myself. I don't want any writers getting into my business because that um, threatens my job. But he needed the help so badly because it's such a hard job that when she stepped up to help him, he was like, oh, thank you. You know what? When the, when the other writers go home, will you stay? because I need your help more. So wow. now she's like this valued asset because she she helped out more. So it, it does, that that illustrates how much the fear can kind of corrupt showrunners yeah. a little bit. And um, she, she operated from a place of kindness. You know, hey, do you need help? I will do anything you need me to. It wasn't ego or anything. Yeah. And he really needed that. So that that shows you a lot, I think. I love that. All right, should we move on? Yes. I, wait, I want to say something as we're, wait, we're... The next topic, I just need to say something before I forget. Sort of say this it. week in writing. I finally watched Don't Worry, Darling. And I got to say... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was into it. I can't even believe it. Maybe it's those expectations because I read some so much... There was so much controversy. and But um, it kind of killed me because I saw the Van Dyke brothers had a story by credit as opposed to written mm. by and just Ooh. seeing that on the screen after reading the script. And we've talked about this before. It just, it hurt me. It just, I just felt bad. I felt bad for him and it's going to happen to you, me. us, everyone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone it's here, everyone yeah. that's listening and it's going to, there's going to be a time when it, it happens, you get rewritten from a, a really good idea and it sucks. And, uh, but I have to say the the movie was right up my alley. <laughs> Was it very different then? Uh, no. I mean, it wasn't that different, but mm -hmm. it was different. There were there were some some differences, and I I'm a little bummed. There's so much controversy around it because I actually did find it engaging. Like I was like, what is happening in this movie? It's interesting then that they got a story by instead yeah. of hmm. 
I know. I know. Next thing that I want to talk about. So this last week, I, uh, as I've, I've mentioned on this podcast, I'm being rewritten on something. And I happened to walk into the room where the new writer and the producers were all meeting to discuss notes on the revisions that this new writer has done. And um, it was on set, which is like the situation that it happened in, because otherwise it's, it's rare that that would happen. But it happened in, and I felt everyone tense in the mm. room. Like, why is she here? And oh no, is she going to freak out? Like, I, I don't know what their, their POV on the situation was, but the tension was Oh real. shit. It's like and Jerry so Maguire. It was like Jerry Maguire. So <laughs> I, I came in and I was going to just sit down and start talking to them and, and hearing like, okay, where are we with the script? And is there anything I can help with? And blah, blah, blah. And instead I grabbed my notebook and I left. <laughs> Oh, and I acted like, and I acted like I needed to go somewhere because I was embarrassed that mm -hmm. they felt this way and that I was not welcome in this room. So I went outside. I called my manager because she had called me anyway. So we just talked about other things, and then I was like, I'm going to bring it up with her and see what what she has to say because this is this is bothering me. So I said, Hey, you know, I just walked into this room and this happened, and I don't know what to do. And she's like. You go in there right now. You are a warrior. <laughs> she's like, oh, I love one L. <laughs> she's like, you deserve to be in that room. You wrote the draft that they're able to get produced. She's in there revising, but that doesn't mean she's not revising off of your draft. Like, go in there and and play your part, and you you belong there, and let it be on them to kick you out if mm -hmm. that's something they're going to do. And. Since I need to work on confidence, I did that. And you know what? They didn't kick me out. And I had great contributions to give. I had great wow. thoughts to add. And it was really interesting to watch this other writer work and hear the way she thought. And um, it was a great learning experience. It was all only positive. And I ultimately left earlier. Like, I didn't stay for the whole, like, notes mm -hmm. meeting. I left when I wanted to. Power move. Um, um. Yeah, but, I love it. No, I love this. But yeah, story. it was it was great. Like it, it really it really helped helped out to have someone just kind of pep talk you. And we had an idea that I needed to get like an earbud and just have her in my ear whenever I go to meetings, so she can be like, "You deserve to be there. Don't you get up? <laughs> you stay right there." <laughs> I, well, I love this because she's absolutely right, and this is like my favorite Tasha story ever. Now it just <laughs> took took the top spot because she's right. Like it's it should be on them to tell you to leave, and that's. They've made all of these decisions. You're a professional. You're doing your job. You deserve to be there. So if they have a problem, they can tell you to go. And, yeah. And that's 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 awesome. I love that. I guess so. Turned out okay. If if we're burying our souls, I, I'm gonna yeah. bring something up that I yes, haven't. Please. I haven't. So there's something I I'm working on, and I have not heard like I was supposed to get an update from a um executive at this company mm -hmm. and I sent her a message weeks ago and I hadn't heard from her which is really uncommon it was really strange I was like that's weird she never wrote me back and then I talked to one of the producers on the project who essentially was like yeah just shoot her an email she'll get back to you and I was like all right this is crazy I haven't heard from her then last week I wrote my manager and I said hey Jay-Z, I haven't really heard from so-and-so. This is really weird. Do you mind reaching out now? Because just to put a pin in this, 
this is why it's really important to have reps because I, I, I feel like I can do everything and I can reach out to people, but it is nice to have somebody do things for you on your behalf in that. Yeah. Um, however, my manager reaches out to her and it's been radio silence and it's been like eating at me and kind of freaking me out. I even haven't even heard back from my manager yet, which um, I was going to reach follow up with them about it this week. How long has it been? Uh, this was last week. Okay. And this is very uncommon. This person, this executive has been very respons- very responsive. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but it's like threw me in one of those tailspins where I'm like, what the fuck? And then you start getting mad at yourself. I do. Where I'm like, I should, I, there's, I, what did I do? What the hell happened here? Why aren't they responding? They should be responding faster. I wish I was at yeah. a different level. So I heard back from them. And you start going down that, this rabbit hole. I think the next step is like, well, I don't know what the next step is. I'll talk to Jay-Z about it, but uh, yeah, that's that, That's what happened. That's hard. It's hard it's when weird. you feel like you've been blocked out of the pro- process because your your immediate reaction is the project's dead. Mm-hmm. Project's dead or option B, which I don't know which is worse, they're moving on completely without me. Totally. And I don't know, like my... My solve for driving myself crazy about this has always just been to forget it and work on other things yeah. until I hear back because like you you can only work on what you can control and that's the only thing you can control but doesn't make it easier. Yeah, and I don't like when people tell you things and then they don't follow up. Like really important things. You know, like and what I mean by that is I've had conversations with this executive and there were things that were left open-ended and it was uh things that people should be communicating on. Like if you and I, Tasha, were having a conversation and you were like, hey, let's, let's, uh, I'm gonna, I want to produce something that you're writing. I'm like, that's great. And you're like, why don't you um, just send me over some new, new ideas of the, of, you know, the draft that you're going to do or something. I'm like, great. So I send you over those ideas and you just never get back to me. My brain would be spinning. And for me personally, it's very hard to move past things. Is it possible she may be wanting sort of an update on her end before she even gets back to you so she has something to report? No. She should be responsive. No? Okay. <laughs> anyway, so that's my soul-bearing moment. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It happens to everyone. Everyone. I feel like one of the biggest things I get is, how often should I be emailing someone because I haven't heard back from them? Totally. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the biggest thing. Totally. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you have advice for how, how long... Someone should wait in this kind of scenario? No, because now I'm out of my own advice territory. And it's easy to say when it's not. Living on emotion. Totally. It's easy to say when it's not you. I'm writing other things so that it keeps me busy. But every once in a while, it like pops up in my brain. And I'm like, what the fuck? What's happening with these these projects? I'm like, why don't I know? I should know something. I wrote them. Like if, if it's dead, it's dead. We should move on from it. I just need to know that. Yeah, that's so I don't know. I'll talk to Jay-Z about it and get his advice and keep you posted. Keep us posted on how it goes. Oh, it's going to be great. One. That's a big one. Being ghosted by an executive you have a good relationship with. It's terrible. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. On that note. Yeah, it's great. Great day. <laughs> Quote of the day. Quote of the day. <laughs> we all have an obligation to keep moving the needle forward. Always. So don't ever give up on yourself. Billie Jean King. Oh, now I'm going to reach out to this person? 
Yeah. Right after this podcast. <laughs> Never mind. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday or on Instagram at, nope. And that's on Instagram or on Twitter at Dasha 3.0. Yes, I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter, Josh Hallman on Instagram. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Mm-hmm.